0: This is Lou Elizondo, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast.
1: That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio-quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Some of the incredible features include live soundboard editing, automatic post-production, and secured cloud backup. I do love that automatic post-production on my podcast. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and it's been an intriguing, interesting, confusing and at times frustrating year for those of us with a passion for the UFO subject. But there has rarely been a week gone by without something new to discuss. To go over some of the highlights of the year so far, I'd like to welcome back to the podcast two guests whose book Uh, along with james lakatsky skinwalkers at the pentagon was certainly a highlight of last year and a big big talking point dr com kelleher and george knapp welcome back to the podcast gents eddie how you doing to be here it is Excellent to have you on and I uh, apologize to the listeners who asked questions and I was trying to keep this a different format as I've just discussed. So this one is more of a kind of highlights pod, but thanks to everyone who sent me over questions. Hopefully some of those will get answered within the, the body of the conversation anyway. Um, big highlight that happened very recently, uh, George, I'll come to you first, was the confirmation announcement unveiling, whatever you want to call it, of of Travis Taylor being the chief scientist behind the UAP task force and the report, this was news to certainly 99.9% of the, the population, it seems. Um, I wonder, George, how long did you know about this already? Uh, I'm presuming you knew ahead of time.
0: Uh, not very long. For, I, I want to say this, Andy. First of all, you know we're recording this on the 4th of July, and I, being the only uh, native-born colonial here, I uh, would like to say, uh, King George, go home. Um, <laughs> I'm outnumbered by Brits or ex-Brits and uh, just, you know, enjoying the holiday. I hope everyone is as well.
1: Regarding yeah, happy Travis Taylor. Of July.
0: Uh, Apologies. Yeah. Happy Fourth of July. Happy holidays. Yeah. Independence Day. Um, just a little background on Travis Taylor. I, you know, I first met him right around the time that the Skinwalker show had been announced. There was some kind of a History Channel event at a at a UFO convention and he was there and and we got introduced Um after the formal event. And he looked at me like I was a criminal. I mean, he uh, li- with great suspicion. And I think that his his suspicions continued for a long time. You know, he he's explained to me since then, since we've had sort of a more of a dialogue, that he went into the whole Skinwalker Ranch TV show as a, a profound skeptic in the sense that he thought, you know, he's not skeptical about UFO stuff necessarily, but he felt that there was some kind of scam going on about the ranch, that either it was the Bigelow organization or me, uh, me and Column as authors trying to scam this, or maybe it was a foreign government, the Russians or the Chinese, or maybe American intelligence agencies playing games out there, that the phenomena was not real and that we had written about it and blown it way out of proportion. He was highly dubious about the whole enterprise. Fast forward a year from that point, and his attitude had changed profoundly because he had had his own experiences. He'd been on the ground there, boots on the ground on the ranch, and had seen things that he could not explain. One of the things that he saw there was something that he felt had national security implications. I don't know exactly what that event was, but he went to some folks in the Pentagon whom he suspected had some kind of a connection to the UFO study, and he told them about it. And the guy that he went to go see is the was the person who was in charge of what later became known as the UAP Task Force. The UAP Task Force existed before it existed. It was already in existence long before Congress formally created it. There was an organization uh, headed by a really professional guy, we can get into his name if you want, who had been at this for a long time, who'd worked for the U.S. Navy as an intelligence officer, had worked for the DIA. He was highly respected. And this sort of fell in his lap to investigate military encounters with UFOs and then other phenomena. He had familiarity with both the NIDS organization, with the OSAP program, uh, and with, uh, and with uh, the ATEP program as well, and worked with Lou Elizondo. Travis goes to see him, tells him about this experience that he would had on the ranch. This guy thinks about it for a while and then invited him to join the UAP task force as the chief scientist. Column and I had suspicions that Travis knew more than he'd ever let on. We had private conversations that Column could weigh in on there. Uh, But, uh, you know, I interviewed Travis a month earlier before this big interview about his secret role broke out and had talked to him about the ranch, about his personal experiences, about medical consequences, things that had happened to him on the property, exposure to radiation, hitchhiker effects, uh, things of that sort. And I had no idea at that time in fact, that he was wearing this other hat. It was a few weeks later that I, I learned. And the, the reason that he came clean with me about it is he had found out that there was a FOIA release of his emails to the guy we're talking about, Jay Stratton, who was the head of the UAP task force. And they thought that they were worried that they were concerned that a lot of these emails were going to come out and that their names would be revealed. Now, I don't think that in, in actuality what was released through FOIA Identified either one of them. I think the names were redacted, but he wanted to be able to explain what his role was before it came spilling out on a FOIA request and got twisted and turned by, you know, what the UFO Twitter is like and UFO social media. Who knows? He could come out looking like a super villain by the time he was done with it. So he agreed to speak to me. And I had gone to this SCU conference in Huntsville where it was a great lineup of speakers. And even more impressive than the speakers were the people who were in the audience listening to the event. Uh, Jay Stratton was one of them. Travis Taylor, Eric Davis, a former colleague of columns, and a lot of other really interesting people who are in the audience, who are part of that uh, aerospace uh, think tank and industry that's blossoming down there in Huntsville, uh, along with sort of a, an unofficial UFO hotspot in terms of people who've researched the topic are all there. I got to spend some time with Travis kind of talked him into going on camera, and he told the story. And, and look, I, there's no one more surprised than I was, because I can tell you, he was intensely hostile to the subject matter of Skinwalker Ranch at the beginning. To say he's a skeptic is not doing him justice. He was extremely skeptical about the nature and source of the events that were happening on the ranch. He's since changed. He, does, he did what scientists are supposed to do. You go in there, And you investigate. You put boots on the ground and you find out for yourself. And he found out that this stuff is real. Now, explaining it, that's another matter. That's still a challenge. But I applaud his courage in taking on the responsibility, in wearing the two hats, both as being part of the UAP task force and then also working on the TV series, and in standing up to what he knew was inevitable. He was going to get slimed uh, as soon as the news came out. He knew it. I knew it but he was willing to go forward with it anyway. And and uh, it's exactly what the topic needs. People with his credentials, and his credentials are astounding. I, and I, I don't want to read it, but I mean, five different advanced degrees, two PhDs, astrophysics and optical physics and engineering and astronomy. And, you know, he's exactly the person you would want to have in there based on credentials alone. And the fact that he is open He's not a true believer, as I think I've seen described. He's a believer in that this is worth studying. It's worth investigating to find out what it is. He's not saying it's aliens. He's not saying it's time travelers. He doesn't know what it is. He's doing what scientists are supposed to do. Go to the source, investigate, do some experiments, see if he can figure it out. So anyway, I I, I hope I didn't get off on too much of a tangent there, but that's that's the story in a nutshell. No, not at all. My only
1: issue, George, with you is that your interview came out about four or five days after I interviewed Travis Taylor myself. And if I just waited four or five days, I could have had the first interview after you. So, yeah, I'll uh, just put that one down to bad timing. Yeah, same thing r- for me.
0: I had just interviewed him a couple of weeks before and it was a great interview. Him, him He was very forthright, as you know, uh, Andy, in, in, in describing the things that have happened to him and the things that they've encountered on the ranch. Uh, but we never got into that specific uh, topic in that earlier interview. And I was I was floored like everyone else was when it came out.
1: Yeah, I, I changed my opinion slightly on, on Dr. Travis Taylor and speaking to him and the way he comes across and because he has a, a TV persona and I'm going to ask you about that in just a minute. But Colm, what what was your reaction to finding out Dr. Taylor was was leading the task force from a scientific point of view?
2: Well, as George mentioned, um, you know, George and I have sort of talked about Travis for for quite a while. And um, I I also have known Jay Stratton for many years. Um, And, you know, informally, there was a sort of a discussion group formed around the UAP task force before it became official. And, you know, there would be Zoom calls and telephone calls and signal texts and all of that. And um, Travis's name came up very, very frequently. Uh, during these conversations with these people who were either on the task force or who were associated with the task force as consultants. I mean, there was a, a sort of an informal, yet another budding offshoot of the Invisible College kind of thing um, that were discussing um, uh, what, what was going on with the, the UFO topic. And you know, interestingly, um, this was way before we had published, you know, skin markers at the Pentagon. This was even before the task force was officially announced. But Travis Taylor's name came up again and again and again. So, I mean, I I kind of knew he was um, part of that informal circle. I certainly didn't know he was the chief, uh, you know, the chief the chief scientist of the of the the whole enterprise, but. You know, as things got more and more official over time, yeah, the the task force people changed the numbers of, of di- different people who were associated in the inner circle and the consultants changed over time. But, you know, one thing that, that, you know, really struck me about the task force was even from the very, very early days of the task force before it became official, there was a sort of an unspoken understanding and agreement that the, the focus of the UFO topic should go beyond this, um, only the physics and the engineering aspects of UFO performance, and that it should be a lot broader. And I was always struck in my conversations with these people who were either part of the task force or informal consultants about how number one, incredibly knowledgeable they were about the um, you know, effects of UFO, a few UFOs on people. Including all of the Skinwalker Ranch lore, and uh, a lot of these people were very familiar with the nuts and bolts of what happened on Skinwalker Ranch. So, um, I found the task force and their consultants to be tremendously open, open-minded, way, way more open-minded than, say, a lot of the people who have received our book, you know, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. And you know, as George said, I think Travis Taylor started this whole thing extremely skeptical and then he's had a, so many personal experiences including personal experiences of the hitchhiker effect that you know the the skeptic has you know transformed into somebody who is open to, much more open to the uh the broad spectrum of ufo effects so yeah i mean i i think the guy is um i i don't know him as well as george does but I've I've heard him by reputation for many many years,
1: George. You mentioned Travis Taylor's CV, and it's incredible. You say five advanced degrees, and there is a whole list of of other offshoots of jobs and roles and consultation roles he's done in different companies. Most of us don't have the luxury of knowing Travis Taylor uh, personally. What we see is a persona that is portrayed on TV, which is obviously at the the mercy of editors and a time constraint. Some say that has lessened the impact his announcement has in, in heading up that role, given the the character almost of Travis Taylor, we know from Skinwalker Ranch, the TV show. Is that fair, or, or what, what would you say to that?
0: I, I understand why those questions would be raised, and Travis knew they'd be raised as well, but look, what do you want in a UFO investigator? His role on the TV show is the same as his role for the UFO task force. It's to dig into this stuff, study it, and try to figure it out. That's not a conflict. They're the same thing. Uh, the fact that he has a, a high a persona, a high-profile job on television, it does complicate things. But I saw this this ridiculous article in Science uh, Magazine put out by Keith Clore how how in the world that magazine, uh, with its reputation, publishes an article by a guy like him with his nefarious background and his personal history is beyond me. I mean, you couldn't publish a paper about Skinwalker Ranch in that magazine, but you can publish an article that guts somebody like Travis Taylor, a gi- legitimate scientist who has an open mind and an insatiable curiosity, and, and just, it was it was terribly unfair. There's no... You know, that article, like all the debunker articles, they all quote the same five people. They all quote each other. They interview each other as as experts. All the same five debunkers all quote each other and repeat the same stuff no matter who comes forward. This is a concerted effort to not only attack Travis Taylor, but to attack anybody else who might come forward. It's a warning. If you're going to come, if you're a scientist with advanced degrees and you take this stuff seriously... And you make it public that you're willing to investigate it and and take it seriously and follow the evidence where it leads, you're gonna get your ass kicked. That's the message that was sent, loud and clear. It was incredibly unfair. It was incredibly biased. They quoted only their little buddies who have a debunker newsletter. And uh it was it was ridiculous. And it got repeated in multiple other media forums um with with very little scrutiny, very little editorial insight. It was it was uh, I think it's it's representative of what's been going on with the topic for a long time. You know, the debunkers are so desperate now to hang on with their fingernails to the position that none of this is true. And in light of the UAP task force and their report and the congressional interest and the congressional hearings, I, I think their desperation is in, has increased. And anybody who comes forward to advance, hey, there's something interesting going on here, gets attacked. And the attacks have become much more personal in the last couple of months than we've seen for a long time. I'm on the receiving end of it. I, I, I see it. I know it comes with the territory. Now Travis Taylor sees it in the same thing. And, that, and the fact that this is sent out as a warning shot to anybody else who might be studying this and taking it seriously, that is the, the message that needs to come across to the public is this is an attempt to intimidate and debunk uh, prior to even seeing the information. So I, I have no problem with him wearing those two hats. And the fact that the guy has written a bunch of uh, sci fi novels, and he has five degrees, he's written 14 books. He, you know, that, that was also uh, presented as well, that's a disqualifier. He's a true believer. If you write sci fi novels, it makes him a true believer. That's not true. If you know sci fi writers are hostile to the UFO topic historically, They're not, they don't embrace it, they hate it. Uh, so, you know, the fact that he has that much time and energy and is interested in the big wide world around us, those are all pluses as far as I'm concerned. And I'm so glad that he had the courage to take on those jobs. I'm so glad that he's sticking with it. And I hope that other people who are out there thinking of doing the same thing are not intimidated by these jerks who try to uh, stop anyone from discussing the subjects.
1: Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook red ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. That's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Colm, let me follow up something I I spoke to Travis about, if you don't mind just while I've got you. Travis discussed with myself how lowered brain activity through different medications or meditative states can help people experience events related to the phenomenon. And on the other hand, drugs drugs like nicotine, caffeine and such could hinder potential experiences. Is that something you studied during the OSAP days or were at least aware of? Yeah. Um so so what was the first drug you mentioned there? he um, mentioned nicotine, caffeine being detrimental oh, to, to those sorts of experiences. <clears throat> well,
2: you know, there's a there's a long history of um of the overlap between consciousness and and these kinds of of experiences. Um so you know, I think probably what he's getting at is is that the you know, all of these models of consciousness as they pertain to the brain um, are are increasingly getting uh, more relevant as time goes on, um, especially, you know, the so-called hallucinogenics, DMT, uh, which which is, you know, um, one of the sort of uh, tools being used in the toolbox now to explore consciousness, and it's sort of uh, getting more and more widespread. So, yes, I would agree that, the, you know, uh, mindset and anything that affects the the mindset anything that affects consciousness will definitely either open up or close down um, receptivity um, on skinwalker ranch i personally when I was on the ranch, I was always very conscious of making sure that I was on so called even keel that I was, that I was not sort of all over the map um, in terms of emotions or Feeling anger or any of that stuff, I tried to maintain a sort of a you know a, a psychological st- stability while I was on the property and I did notice that um, people in my surroundings who tended to get angry tended to get explosively angry on the on the property at times so um there may be this connection um we you know there were there were some times when we brought on um, people for example. Uh, remote viewers uh, were were interacting with the property. Uh, there were a couple of people who were brought onto the property, uh, who had psychic abilities. Um, all of these people reported, you know pretty intense experiences. There was one woman that was kind of uh, famously brought on during the very early period when Terry Sherman slash Gorman was uh, uh, you know the owner of the property. And, you know, she absolutely sort of fell apart when she was on the property and she started reporting all kinds of really bizarre entities that were in her surroundings. And, you know, there's a there's a reflective aspect of this phenomenon that reflects right back at you what your mental state is. And that's been very well documented throughout the decades. So that aspect can be get can can get really amplified. Um, but just um, I wanted to go back to this whole Science Magazine thing with uh, with, with um, Travis Taylor because, you know, Science Magazine and Nature Magazine are the two uh, most impactful science journals in the world. If you go into a, a, a library in Moscow, you'll see a copy of Nature and a copy of Science Magazine in the library. If you go into, and i personally experienced this, a library in this, in rural France, the two main magazines that you'll see and open are Science Magazine and Nature Magazine. So um, an article in Science Magazine is incredibly impactful, incredibly sort of, uh, it is at the very top tier of all science journals in the world. So for a, for an article like what happened with Travis Taylor to go into Science Magazine is incredibly influential and incredibly impactful. This is not something on Twitter. This is read by half a million to a million people who influence policy, who are on top of policy, and who translate science into policy. So the the damage that that article did is incredibly important. And um, the fact that a guy like Keith Kluwer could actually... Put an article into Science magazine is a gigantic anomaly. Because normally the people who publish in Science magazine are at the very top of their game. They're like it's a level of prestige unlike any other in, in terms of, of, of publications. So a guy like Keith Kluwer publishing even a, a news section of, in Science Magazine should be extremely well vetted within 24 hours of the publication of that article it became pretty obvious that um Keith Kluwer had mistakenly got the quotation from the Pentagon regarding Travis Taylor wrong i mean that that sort of ineptitude and that sort of complete lack of professionalism is a complete anomaly when it's when it comes you know to to publishing in science magazine it, it the whole thing is has got a very bad stench
1: to it. I was going to say, so it sounds like you would both think that it it's deliberate, that the article was placed there by someone deliberately and not just a case of, you know, accidentally bad vetting, as you say.
0: Oh, I mean, how yeah. do you, how do you do something like that that guts somebody you know, that cuts his legs off, who has all those degrees, who really is a scientist, not a pretend scientist, not a TV scientist, He's worked for our Pentagon since he was a teenager. He has high level right. security clearances, trusted by the U.S. government, by the U.S. military with some of its most sensitive secrets to do good, hard, honest work uh, for the U.S. Army and for NASA. Uh, he's the real deal. And to have him gutted by the likes of Keith Clore, without even a comment from him, without any kind of a counter narrative at all, no, no, no other counter opinion at all. It's absolutely outrageous. It's shameful. I can't understand how it can happen.
1: Well, I'm sure Dr. Taylor's work is going to speak for itself as we continue to go forward, as his resume does. Um, let's move on to, to the next topic I want to discuss, which is you brought up just before, George, the, the hearings in the U.S. Congress. Now, it, it's not lost on me. This is the 75th anniversary of Roswell roswell was mentioned in congress which was fascinating um was the the hearings which have been long called for by many on either of your radars particularly early or again was this something that came as a bit of a surprise to you as it was announced
0: well i'll start i i think you know it's the first public hearing before congress in 54 years so it is a landmark uh, event it's a milestone it's, a, it's an indication of how far the subject matter has come in the last five years to be acceptable enough for members of Congress to sit up there, get a briefing, and then ask questions of the uh, U- U.S. military officials and not fear being ridiculed. That's astonishing. And it's a, it's a major landmark, just the fact that it happened. Then actually we get to what happened on the day of the hearing, and that's where it becomes problematic. I was encouraged that somebody finally came forward and told us how to pronounce AIMSOG, the name of that that r- ridiculous um, uh, acronym for the new program. I was encouraged that they said they're going to probably rename it when they got their new uh, director on. And that was about all that was encouraging. The, the fact that they could not run uh, the audiovisual equipment and show us that little video clip uh, was was problematic. I was glad they tried. Uh, but then then things went downhill from there in a big hurry the lack of historical context that these two guys had, uh, their lack of information, they had no familiar, familiarity with UFOs appearing over nuclear missile installations. That was like, they looked at like they were making it up, like there were deer in the headlights. The fact they had no familiarity with the Wilson Davis memo, uh, that, those were bad enough. And then what they, the sleight of hand trick that they pulled with the the uh, drone video, the the pyramid video that, that had been released by Jeremy Corbell and, and I uh, a while back, that was that was really the low point. And, and it was sleight of hand. You have Bray from the Navy saying, well, we had one of these things on the East Coast and we think it's reflected, reflected light inside an infrared device. And therefore, we've de- debunked all these videos on the West Coast and we figured out they were drones. And that was it. They washed their hands. It's drones. That's it. Nobody asks a question, like, whose drones? You know, these drones, there were more than 100 of them that buzzed 10 different Navy ships in the course of a couple of days. Uh, There were not only the pyramids or triangle videos that were seen over the USS Russell, but these spheres that were caught, they were captured on video, on sensors, on radar that tracked the USS Omaha. There was more than a dozen of those that pestered the Omaha for more than an hour. The other ships in, in that flotilla there, they had the same kind of problems And they said, oh, that's drones. Uh, The implication being it was the Chinese uh, Hong Kong registered ship that had released these drones. No proof whatsoever. In fact, as we now know, it's completely contrary to the evidence that's been made public. That ship was inspected. The drones were still flying around while it was in port. And then, you know, the basic questions, as I mentioned, whose drones are these that fly around with impunity over U.S. Navy ships? They don't see where they came from. They don't see where they went to. They have no idea who launched them, how they were able to stay in in the ocean, 100 miles off the coast, flying around for hours over our ships with impunity. Nobody's curious about that. The Navy just completely washed that uh, away. Congress didn't answer any questions about it. And it's given new life to these debunkers who say, yeah, it's just drones, no big deal, as if you go buy these things at Radio Shack. It's ridiculous. that It's not explained. Uh, and if they were drones, if they were drones that somehow show up in this infrared, which I think we're going to find out that is that is not the case. I think that we're going to have people that are going to come forward and confirm that what was seen is real. Um, you know, That's still a mystery. That's still something we didn't know about. It's a national security matter. And it just was washed away like in, in just a couple of seconds by a navy that said I don't know if you probably noticed the the special language they used Andy um, the, the congressman asked him a question yeah well how do you, do you determine that these these things are just drones and that's sort of bokeh effect or whatever not using that term and the guy said well studies have been done yeah studies have been done by who didn't say the navy did these studies because the navy didn't i'll just give you this one last thought on it the UAP task force finished its work when it presented that report to Congress. That was it. 144 cases, 143 of them are unknowns. That They were done. The guy we're talking about, Jay Stratton, he'd been removed in early 2021, took him out of the mix. They had to pr- produce that report for Congress in a matter of six months. Travis Taylor helped write it, and then their work was done. Suddenly, AIMSOG is created by Congress. After that, they're still not operational. They're still hiring people right now. Their their new director is not even on the job yet. Who made the determination in between the UAP task force when it shut down and AIMSOG, which still is not up and running? Who made the determination these were drones? Who did it? I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that report. I think it's bullshit.
1: Very quick follow up on that, though, George. Um, let me play devil's advocate here. I've always said the three videos that were released and the, the sections of them that were released were boring and vague enough to be allowed f- to the public to see them. We've heard of the context behind them and, and what may or may not happen before and after the cameras, you know, what we see. But is that what happened with the hearings? We heard what we're allowed to hear. And then we had a classified portion. Did you ever get wind of anything within that classified section? being any more interesting even the the task force report we got that redacted page which had the shape of uap again (laughs) fully redacted fully redacted it was a full page of redactions except the, the headline things like that only fuel the fire of debunkers and those who want to claim these are drones don't they
0: well, I, I, don't, I don't have any direct information about what the Congressional Committee was told behind closed doors. I wish I knew. Maybe, Con, uh, maybe Colm knows a little bit more about that.
2: Well, I, I do know that all of, the, all of the videos that have been released and all of the data that has been released uh, is backed up by an awful lot more than what the public sees. And, you know, the fact that the public only sees a very narrow rifle shot Plays right into the hands of the debunkers, who say, "Okay, well, uh, I mean, the gimbal video is just a, a reflection. Um, it's it's just a reflection for these reasons." And and there's a whole body of data behind that um, that is classified, and so will never will not be released. And so the the idea that this narrow narrow uh, piece of data is picked apart endlessly on Twitter. Is, um, gives the whole thing, uh, the iceberg, the underneath of the iceberg behind it. It, you know, it, it, it's impossible to sort of refute, um, based on data because all of the data is classified. So it's a real chicken and egg situation. And I remember all the way back in, in 2017 when the, the first, those th- first three videos were released, um, during the TTSA era and, and when, when, Um, Lou Elizondo had just sort of quit his job and all of that. And, you know, the level of frustration that I was hearing uh, from behind the scenes uh, because um, what was released was released in good faith, those three videos, but then you had uh, these armies of people on social media who were looking at a very, very small part of the data and tearing it apart based on almost no information I mean, I heard it several times, you know, why did we go to the trouble of releasing these, these videos? I mean, what's the point in, in actually releasing information to the public when all you get is sort of uninformed um, sort of, uh, you know, armchair theorists who are sitting there um, debunking and sort of um, trolling uh, all of the information that comes out? So I think that's, a, that's becoming a real problem. Um, that there's a lot of classified data behind a lot of the a lot of the reports that have come out, but that classified data is an awful lot more interesting than uh, what the public sees. But yet it's kind of like this um, it's a, like a signal versus noise thing, where there's a tremendous amount of noise out there that's drowning out the signal completely. And you know, either by accident or or by design, I really feel s- sorry for people who are starting in on this whole thing and starting to learn about UFOs because all they see is this wall of noise. It's like radar, chaff, You know, you you can't
0: get at the signal because there's so much noise. Uh, Travis Taylor made this same point, Andy, in our interview uh, where he said, you know, there's limits on what he can say about the 144 cases. But he said, you know, no one in the world can look at just a little snippet of video and declare what it is. We were able to determine these are genuine unknowns and are still genuine unknowns based on a lot more information, as Colm just said, radar and other sensors that told us these objects were real. This is not a star that these people are seeing on the on the Navy ship. This is something that was 700 feet above the flight deck, um, you know, the, the deck of the ship. And uh, there's so much more information, unredacted uh, statements from the crew and, and um, you know other kinds of information that they can see that the public hasn't seen, they made their determination based on a lot more information that we have seen, and they both laugh and are aghast at what the debunkers do with this stuff to muddy the waters. It's birds, it's flares, it's jet engines. They can throw out whatever they want, often throw everything under the sun and see what sticks to the wall to just discredit it all, and people like Travis Taylor and Jay Stratton are wondering what's the point of doing this at all? What's the point of trying to do this work? You have people like this who are trying their best to discourage the public from being interested, to discourage scientists from coming forward, and to discourage military witnesses from telling what they know. It was already hard enough to get pilots to come in and say, hey, I encountered this thing on my flight from Oceania on the East Coast or the Navy guys on the West Coast. Nobody wants to say that stuff. It's harder now. Because they worry, what fo- files will come forward? Will my name be attached? And I'm, am I going to be slimed as well? It's a very real concern.
1: Was there anything calm within the the hearings that gave you cause for hope? Uh, George obviously sounded quite frustrated and disappointed at the content. And I think that echoed quite a lot of people's sentiments, to be honest. Was it the same for yourself? Or was there anything that you you can, uh, you, you can cling on to? I found
2: uh, I found the hearings um extremely disappointing. Um I I felt that um the, the the two people who were sort of paraded in front of the public um were really badly uh, briefed. Um it was pretty obvious to me that um there I mean 144 cases um at, at, that has now transitioned into many hundreds of cases. With a lot of classified data, there should have been an awful lot better preparation from these two individuals. So, to me, it was an indication of, um, you know, the sort of the mentality uh, that unfortunately existed during Project Blue Book, and seems to have carried on with uh, with this um, OUSDI AOI MSG organization, um, where where there is a tendency not to be uh, fully engaged with this topic and try to avoid the topic if possible. I mean, there's two 800 pound gorillas in the room here. Number one is the United States Air Force and the, number two is the uh, OUSDI, the Office, office of, this, of, of the Undersecretary of, of Defense for Intelligence. Um, so both of these uh, organizations have a long history that goes back decades Um, with respect to a lot of hostility um, in in the topic. And so those two organizations control a lot of the information that the public will ever see. And the United States Air Force continually has avoided and trivialized all of the data that, that it has accumulated over the years. And, I mean, it was legendary during Project Blue Book what the United States Air Force were doing, um, the secretary of the Air Force, a guy called Frank Kendall, came out a few months ago and unambiguously said, "Look, as far as we're concerned, there's no there there, and so until we see it there there, we're not going to put the resources into it." So again, it's a chicken and an egg situation. The only bright spark that I saw uh, in the uh, in the congressional hearings was actually the uh, how well briefed the con- the Congress people were. Um, they were much much better than um, the two uh, the two guys from the Pentagon who were paraded out. Um, the the people uh, uh, from Congress were obviously very well briefed, um, and so a lot of the questions that got written into the record, official record uh, during those hearings, will be there festering, you know, like a, you know like an unland boil, ready to be ready to be exploded. And there, I mean, it's kind of like landmines waiting to be, uh, to be trodden on because they're in the official record and they will eventually be addressed. So that was, the, I, I guess, the brightest part of it uh, for me was that the Congress people who were way, way more proactive and way more knowledgeable, and assuming the staffers are really the knowledgeable people, um, they're obviously pretty engaged with the topic and also pretty engaged with the, uh, the community.
1: Representative Mike Gallagher was one of those who impressed many people. Uh, And what stood out to me was he has age on his side as well compared to a lot of his colleagues. And I wonder, George, I'll put this one to you. Do you think that this is something that younger elected officials as a conversation are more likely to gravitate to?
0: I don't know. I mean, he's an example that would prove the point, I guess. That guy, he's clearly done some homework. Somebody's briefed him or he's done the reading. Uh, there's another guy, Tim Burchette, uh, who is not part of that, that hearing, not part of that panel, who also expressed very strong opinions. Uh, I think his exact quote was about the hearing, we got hosed, was what he said. Yeah. Meaning we, the American public, the world public got hosed by that because there's a lot better evidence. There's a lot more information. There are far better witnesses than the two guys that appeared there and that day. But goes guys like that, who've clearly sunk their teeth into this topic. That's the only hope that we have. A lot of the other folks were willing to seem to be willing to play ball and and accept whatever the, the witnesses told them. Uh, you know, I, I hope that that is not the case. I hope this was a, not just a one-off. I, I hope that these guys will follow up on their promises that, hey, we want this answered. We want to know about the Wilson Davis document. We want to know about UFOs over Malmstrom. Get back to us on it. It'll be really interesting to see what kind of responses those guys give them
1: what do you think the chances are, George, that we get another set of hearings to follow this up?
0: I think it'd be pretty good. I mean, I think those, the congressmen who participated got a lot of attention, a lot of public attention, positive public attention. And I think that they have recognized that this is not a dead end, that it's not the a, a third rail, that you can go ahead and talk about UFOs and it could be a positive for their public uh, images and persona. So I hope that that is that is what is conveyed to them, and I hope that they will uh, push that chairman for for more hearings. I suspect that that is going to be the case, but I haven't heard any dates for future hearings. I haven't heard any dates that might be in the future.
1: Colm, if you were part of those hearings or at least trying to make up a manifesto of what should be discussed, what are some of the two or three main topics or or questions you would like to hear answered as part of those hearings? That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast to access shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast of course on twitter it's at ufo uap am and again folks as always keep looking up you never know what you might see it wasn't and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was.
0: Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz.
1: I jumped back, and nearly kissed myself, and then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. And I called up with my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. And they thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I. Should Scare me and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me.